Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before I talk about this passage, one brief note that I could spend probably half this sermon on. Some scholars say that this passage should not even be printed in the Bible. And so if you look at some of your Bibles, they will have uh, some kind of brackets around this. Um, It's not in the early manuscripts of John. Uh, A lot of the language is not like the rest of John. It's almost certainly not part of what John wrote. And so some pastors would not even preach on this passage. Um, They would say this is not in the Bible. Um, Now, I obviously disagree, or else I wouldn't be preaching on it. I think it's inspired. Um, I would love to explain myself more about that. And that gets into really fascinating questions about the authority of Scripture. So please uh, ask me at some point if you want to talk about that. But I'm not going to go into it right now. It would just take too long. So now we'll move into the actual passage itself. And you may have heard of this guy named Larry Nasser, And uh, he's all over the news right now. He uh, apparently molested more than 150 young uh, female gymnasts, includes some very famous ones, some Olympians. And recently he was sentenced to between 40 and 175 years in prison. And there were victims that were interviewed, and one was named Brooke Hylek. And she said, I will never forgive you. I'm happy you'll be spending the rest of your life in prison. Enjoy hell. And that sounds really harsh, but she wanted justice. And I think in some ways that's appropriate. So we shouldn't be too harsh on her. There was another victim named Emily Morales. And she said, I want to apologize. I want you to apologize to me right here so I can forgive you. I want to forgive you. And apparently he did apologize and she forgave him. And so you see these two reactions and both have their merit. So I don't want you to think that one is right and one is wrong. There's grace from Emily Morales and then from Brooke Heilig there is obviously justice. And I think one of the most difficult things about being human is this tension between the two, between grace and justice. And the tension lies at the very heart of who God is. Uh, It says many times in the Old Testament, and it's perhaps one of the most important parts of the Old Testament, that um, God is a God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he forgives sins. And yet then it also says right after uh, that he is a God who by no means clears the guilty. And so you have the tension right there in the very heart of the character of God. And that's what I'll look at in the story because I think both are in the story. Uh, And in the very end you see the justice where Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. And he really means that. And then you also see the grace in verse 11 where he says, neither do I condemn you. And as John C. Riley, who plays a policeman in the movie Magnolia, which is one of my favorite movies, says, sometimes people need to be forgiven, and sometimes they need to go to jail. That's a very tricky thing on my part, making that call. So justice and grace. First of all, justice. Jesus is teaching the temple here, and all these religious leaders have come to him. And in verses 4 and 5, We read, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commands us to stone her. What do you say? They're trying to bring a charge against Jesus. They're trying to test him. And here's the trap. If he says, stone her, 
then he will be breaking the Roman law, which does not allow anyone but the Romans to carry out capital punishment. So if he says stone her, the temple guards, the Roman, the Roman guards will arrest him immediately. If he says don't stone her, then he's breaking the law of Moses, which says that you should stone such a person, as they correctly quote. And so he's in this trap between these two things. And his response is as brilliant as ever. He says in verse 7, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. A very famous biblical statement. Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that um, you can never judge anyone because we're all sinful. That's the way people think about it. That's not what it means. If it meant that, then there could be no more uh, judges or juries or policemen or any judgment at all in the world. So it doesn't mean that. Franklin Graham actually, um, in encouraging uh, Alabama voters to vote for Roy Moore, said, um, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And that's not an appropriate application. And by the way, the Democrats did the same thing to Bill Clinton back in his impeachment trials after the scandal with Monica Lewinsky, they said, many members of Congress, he who was without sin, let him cast the first stone at Bill Clinton. So this is a big problem um, in American culture, this idea that Jesus is just saying, uh, you can't judge anyone uh, because we're all sinful. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying is, in this particular trial, in this uh, particular miscarriage of justice, If anyone among you out there thinks that you are without sin in bringing this woman to me right now, then go ahead and cast the first stone. That's what he's talking about. Because, number one, they publicly exposed this woman to shame. And that was not to happen. So in verse 3, they placed her right in the midst of the crowd. And uh, that is not a part of the Jewish legal system. Number two, they asked for immediate punishment. There should have been a trial carried out. There should have been a careful investigation. Uh, Number three, their motives have nothing to do with justice. They're there to trap Jesus, to test him, to bring a charge against him. And then number four, and perhaps the most damning, is that the man is not there. Where is the man? Uh, He should also be part of this trial, not just the woman. So what Jesus is saying is if you think this trial is just, then go ahead and cast the first stone. And no one did. No one did. It says in verse 9, they went away one by one. And if you look at the end of that verse, the little detail there is fascinating. It says that the first ones to leave are the older ones because they knew the law better. And they probably also knew their own sin better. And so what I'm saying is that Jesus is not lowering the bar on justice here. Uh, He's actually raising the bar on justice. Because Leviticus 20 verse 10 does say, If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. And Jesus is not abolishing that. He is not lowering the bar on justice. He is a a man of justice. He was not opposed to Leviticus 20.10. And I know that we usually think of Jesus as somebody who is, um, like us, very progressive and enlightened. Uh, Like he would have thought that all those Old Testament laws about punishment were inhumane and cruel and unusual, we would probably think that Jesus disagreed with Leviticus 20.10, but, but he didn't. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine Jesus in this way, and maybe this needs to change your view of who Jesus was. Uh, but I think the reason we cannot imagine Jesus being like that is, is because our imaginations, our moral imaginations are very stunted. Um, they're very weak, I would say. And we feel very comfortable in our sin. We take sin very lightly. We 
don't honor marriage like we should, and we don't hate adultery like we should. We very rarely realize the heinous crime that adultery is. Uh, There's a movie called Love Actually, and uh, there is a woman named Karen, and she's played by Emma Thompson. She is married to Harry, who's played by Alan Rickman, who plays Severus Snape. And in both characters, he's a snake. Um, So Karen is married to Harry, and Karen is terrified that Harry is having an affair with his beautiful secretary. But right before Christmas, the movie set at Christmas, right before Christmas, Karen is shopping with Harry. And when they come home, she looks down into his coat pocket, and she notices this beautiful uh, gold necklace that's in a little case, kind of like a CD case. And uh, she gets so excited and she thinks, it's my Christmas gift. He loves me. You know, I didn't, I didn't believe him, but he loves me. And so when it comes to Christmas time, she's so excited that uh, she actually runs in front of her children and she says, me first, me first. And she takes that, uh, that case, which she thinks is a necklace, and she rips it open in front of her children with so much... Uh, Giddiness, and it's a it's a CD by Joni Mitchell, and you can see the um, just the devastation come across her face as she begins to realize that the necklace must have been for the mistress, and she got a CD. And you can see the horror of betrayal right there on Christmas as she's trying to look grateful and to speak gratefully to her children and keep it together for her um, family. And uh, some of you know the feeling that I'm describing, whether it's uh, being cheated on or actually your spouse committing adultery. Uh, Jesus knew this better than anyone. Um, He knew this better than anyone, that adultery is a nauseating, heinous injustice that we are far too comfortable with. And that's why his last words to the woman are, go and sin no more. And he said that with gravity. Okay, he didn't say that uh, kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, like, uh, there, there, no big deal. It's just, don't do it again, that kind of thing. He, He really means that when he says that. And he knows the pain uh, that she has caused her husband and that she has caused to another man's wife. And the question, I think, for us is, uh, where would he say that to you? Uh, Where would he say to you, as this perfect Lord of justice, you need to go from my grace and uh, leaving my grace, which is real, I want you to sin no more. I don't want you to be comfortable in that sin. Because, uh, Because the thing we don't realize is as gracious as as Christ is, he is equally just. In fact, I would say you cannot understand his grace until you understand his justice. And he hates injustice. And he hates injustice primarily because he invented justice. And you see that in verse 6 and this fascinating little detail where it says Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger in the ground. And scholars have tried Uh, for centuries to figure out what he was writing there. And it's a very weird little thing that the author puts there. Part of the reason I think that it's historically true to what happened is because that's not a detail that one would invent. And what I think he's doing there, 
And this is even stranger than the drawing with his finger. What I think he's doing there is he's claiming that he is actually the Lord Yahweh who on Mount Sinai gave the Ten Commandments to Moses after inscribing them with the finger of God. Let me read that amazing verse, Exodus 31, 18. Lest you think I'm making this connection up. On Mount Sinai, the Lord gave Moses the two tablets of the covenant law inscribed by the finger of God in stone. And so I think when the author of this story refers to the drawing of the finger, he probably means that Jesus drew in the sand the ten words, uh, the Tanakh, which we call the Ten Commandments. But really, in Hebrew, it's just ten, ten characters, very simple characters. He would have had time to write down each one by the finger of God, he being God, the lawgiver, the lawmaker. And most likely, he would have underlined, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he would have also underlined, thou shalt not bear false witness. And then they start to leave one by one. Because there in front of them stands the author of justice. So please don't underestimate um, the justice of Christ. And if you're involved in some kind of betrayal right now of cheating or breaking promises, then you need to think about what he says to this woman, um, go and sin no more. He really didn't mean that. That's not a suggestion. That's not good advice. That's a command of God. So that's the first point, justice. Uh, The second point is more hopeful, which is grace, where he says, not only does he say, go and sin no more, he says, neither do I condemn you. And his grace uh, instinctively protects this woman um, who he profoundly criticizes and disagrees with. His grace, nevertheless, instinctively protects her from condemnation from the very beginning, protecting her from condemnation. They've just exposed her, and they're berating him. It says in verse 7, they continue to ask him, shouldn't she be stoned? Shouldn't she be stoned? And there are probably many voices at once yelling, screaming at him. Um, but he doesn't immediately answer. If you notice, he, um, he, he writes with his finger on the ground. And as we saw, what that means on the one hand is that he is the one who authored the law. But on the other hand, um, one commentary said, I think this is brilliant, that when he was writing on the ground, not only was he writing the Ten Commandments, but he was taking all the attention onto himself and turning the spotlight off of her. So that she could be um, kind of invisible or covered by like the lightning rod of all the hostility coming on him. All the hostile eyes of the crowd are now facing him as he bends down and is writing in the sand. But then finally, after bending down, it says he rises again. And when he rises, like a judge would rise uh, and make a pronouncement, everyone is silent. And then he pronounces his first judgment, which is he who is without sin cast the first stone. And that's a judgment on this trial, the supposed trial, this kangaroo court. And, of course, they all disperse. And then after they have all slinked away in guilt, which probably would have taken a long time, uh, he's alone with a woman. And now it's just he and her. And he stands, once again, as a judge to make another pronouncement, the final sentence on her. And I'm sure she was thinking at that point that he's just going to blast me. But he asks a question, as he so often does. He says in verse 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, Lord. And then he says, Neither do I condemn you. 
And I love how he has her say it first. He wants her to say it first. He wants her to say, I am not condemned. And no one condemns me. So that she can believe it more strongly. And that's what grace means. Grace means uh, no more condemnation. You know, grace can also say, go and sin no more. So I don't want to make light of that part. But it also says, no more condemnation from me. In other words, you are treating a person who is guilty as if they were innocent. Which is exactly what Jesus is doing to this woman. And uh, you decide, if you're showing grace, you're deciding, I'm not going to get even. Once again, I'm going to hold them accountable. I'm going to say, go and sin no more, but I'm not going to get even. I'm not going to demand repayment. I'm not going to hate them. I'm not going to hold their sin over their head whenever I talk to them. That's what grace is. Even if they don't repent. She never repents. She never says anything that seems like contrition in this story. And yet he forgives her fully. Neither do I condemn you. So this brings up another application uh, on the grace side, which is um, who are you actively condemning right now? Uh, Who do you want to condemn? Who has mistreated you? Who has most mistreated you? And let's be honest about this, because as Christians, we know we shouldn't feel this way. And so we often pretend we don't feel this way when we actually do feel this way. Um, As Christians, we're often... Um, kind of conditioned to think I've got to show grace and mercy so I've got to pretend that the anger and hate in my heart is not really there and that does no one any good at all and so the question is honestly who has mistreated you and who do you want payback from who are you trying to get even with Um, who do you keep holding the sin over their head on imagine if this woman had run back to her family to her household her um her wife, uh, her husband and kids, and imagine that her little son had come running out to her to greet her and uh, was so excited to see her. Um, knowing that she was safe, he comes running up to her, and as he runs up to her, he drops some really expensive bowl or piece of pottery, and it smashes all over the floor. What if she ran up to him and started to berate him and yell at him and scream at him because he had broken her favorite piece of pottery? Wouldn't that show that she didn't really understand the grace at all, that she didn't get it, that she was not receiving the no condemnation, uh, that she was not receiving the abundant pardon and mercy of God. Um, If you're in that position, well, you are in that position. (laughs) We're all in that position. Vis-a-vis God, uh, we are in a position where we have absolutely no right to condemn anyone. And if you think back to uh, Emily and Brooke, It's really hard to say that. I know it's hard to say that. That in regards to Larry Nassar, you would think that they could certainly um, show condemnation to him. But I think this story says uh, that we can never condemn anyone again. Yes, go and sin no more, but no to demanding payment or getting even. That's just not an option for a Christian. And once again, I'm not saying that to say you're not doing that. We, We do these things. But uh, it's a call every single time that we hear the gospel to be gracious again and again and again. And it's not a one-time decision. This happens again and again and again. This is an ongoing process of uh, continually paying down a debt that someone else owes you. That's what it is to show grace. So it's very costly. This is not an easy thing to do. It's not a one-time thing. 
um, to hold your tongue and to let grievances go and to not rip into the person who has offended you is very, very difficult. Somebody tweeted the script editor of Love Actually, and uh, this was a kind of a, a fan that cared a little too much about the, the movie. And they said, um, do Harry and Karen stay together after she confronts him? And the script editor tweeted back, they do stay together, but the home is not as happy as it once was. And that's a very realistic answer because there is a huge cost to be paid for the rest of Karen's life to receive Harry back into her home, um, to not keep holding it over his head, to not constantly remind him of it, or even for her to remain amorous towards him would be very, very difficult for her to do. It would be a kind of a crucifixion of itself to... um, Keep feeling, I'm, I'm so, I was such a fool, I was so naive. He tricked me, he betrayed me so badly. And the loss of dignity and self-respect that that, that, would, that would demand uh, feeling compared to someone else all the time and profoundly unattractive. Uh, grace is not cheap, it is costly. And that is a phrase that comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew about the costliness of grace. He, t- he coined the term cheap grace, which he described as forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. Because the cross tells us that God is completely just, 100% just, that uh, the cross is God saying, uh, Christ saying, this is what your betrayal feels like to me. This is what it does to me. Because again and again in the Bible, the sin of God's people against God, the sin of the creature against the creator, is described as adultery, is described as betrayal and breaking promises. And so the cross is... God paying the debt for us and saying, I am not going to hold your betrayal over your head at all. Not at all. And so it's saying, this is how passionately I love you. This is how passionately I still love you in spite of your betrayal. You know, Jesus said, he who was without sin cast the first stone. And of course, no one there was without sin, and so no one threw a stone. No one has ever lived who was without sin. You're not without sin. I'm not without sin. So the only person that could ever have cast a stone at the woman is someone who was sinless. And the only person who was sinless was standing right there in front of her and could have quite rightly taken up a stone and cast it at her. But instead of that, we know that the gospel says that the true and only judge Instead of casting stones, he was stoned himself. He was, he was crucified. He received uh, the, the worst kind of capital punishment for us. And that is, uh, that is the very thing that we celebrate in this supper. And the, uh, the essence of Christianity, if, if you don't know, it's not about being blessed. And it's not about going to heaven. Um, the essence of Christianity, it does involve those two things. But the essence of the faith that we hold to from the very beginning is um, personified in this meal. That's why Jesus gave us this meal to 
reenact week after week after week. Because if the sermons are terrible, you can't mess up the table. (laughs) The table says that uh, the essence of what we do here is this incredible exchange. Where he says, I will take uh, your death and I will give you my life. I will take your condemnation. I will give you my righteousness. That's what, that is what this table is all about. And so on the night he was betrayed, uh, when he felt you know, the weight of our adultery, maybe, maybe worse than any other time in the life of God, because there are his best friends who he's worked with for years and years, and they're the ones who betray him and run from him and deny him. Peter like his best friend on earth, denies him, and he has to watch it happen. And so on the night he was betrayed, it was on that night that our Lord took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then in the same way, he took the cup And when he poured it out, he said, this is my blood shed for you. And so whenever we eat from the bread, and whenever we drink from the cup, we are once again proclaiming with all Christendom around the whole world today, the billions of people that celebrated this meal, we are all proclaiming worldwide that uh, God is 100% just and that he is 100% gracious the same time. And that is a difficult thing to believe, I can tell you from experience. And it can take a person a long, long time to come to terms with that. And so, like Austin was saying, we know that a lot of people are in the process. It's not, it's very rarely just this one moment where you just make a decision for Christ. It's usually a long process of having your mind changed, rethinking everything. So if you're still in that process and you're not ready to actually say you believe this, uh, we, we are so glad you're here, and I would love to meet with you. There's a lot of people that, that would love to talk to you about these things, so um, we're so glad you've come. But we don't want to force anyone to do this who's not comfortable and ready to do this. Um, but um, for all the rest of you, please don't let your sin keep you back, because Jesus is saying to you, um, there's no more condemnation, none at all. So let me pray for us as we come to this table.